You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 118 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Well, Valerie, you may <laughs> notice that I'm remarkably crackle-free this week, which is yes. quite exciting. Can you see my? Can you see the effects of my new headset? Oh, yeah, the aura around you is amazing. I know. And so I just want to say to our readers that we're always looking to improve our audio, so I hope that you can hear the difference. We from- might even want to say that to our listeners. What did I say? Who did I say I was saying it to? Readers. <laughs> oh, I'm such a writer, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, listeners, I'm hoping you can hear my glamorous new headset right there, okay? Awesome. Yes. Yeah, so anyway, so apart from wearing a new headset, I, I'm very well, thanks, Valerie. And you, how are you? I am well. I have spent a week in Melbourne uh, and it was just very, very busy, really, really long days. And I am now very, very happy to be at home with my four little fur balls and, um, you know, my own desk, my own bed and all of that. So very happy indeed. So the glamorous life. Not so glamorous. It's not so glamorous, is it really, at the end of the day? No. Although, mind you, your Instagram did look pretty good last week. I was pretty excited for you. <laughs> you looked so professional. So and then professional. there was fun stuff, you know, there was glasses of champagne. and Yes. So I was a little envious. Well, I, I didn't. I suit pants, I have to tell <laughs> I didn't post the fact that we stayed in, in an Airbnb and um, there was dog poo in there. <laughs> oh, what? Really? There was dog poo in there. <laughs> Lord, maybe they thought that would make you feel at home, Valerie. <laughs> maybe they follow you. Who knows? Anyway, do we have anyway. things to discuss that are not headset and dog poo related? Yes, we do. First, we want to give a shout out to, it's either Lane or Laney. Now, Lane or Laney uh, has left us a review on iTunes and has said, this podcast has literally changed my life. So she has written, Dear Alison, Valerie and Alison, after too many years of getting 20,000 or words or so words into a manuscript, my ideas would stop, my momentum atrophy, and I would reach a dead, an end deader than there's ever been, leaving me with a pile of abandoned stories in a Dropbox folder named The Unfulfilled. Oh, I like that. Yeah. But after revisiting your podcast from the very first episode right up to the present, I finally got the message. Alison's voice like a helpful (laughs) little flea in my ear. (laughs) 
And now I am a helpful flea with a useful headset. Yes. So there we go. All right. Keep writing. Say? Keep writing. I told myself to stop giving up when it gets hard, pushed through, even if most of what I get down might be jettisoned further down the track. Just keep going. Write the damn book. So I did every night after the day was done from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. Nice. I Fantastic. Mm. I just kept writing. And guess what? Who boy, it worked. I've not only pushed well past that 20,000 word barrier, but one morning while making school lunches, an outline to my novel just presented itself to me like Daniel Craig knocking on my door. So perfect, so right, just in time and all mine. Goodness <laughs> gracious. I've not got a single doubt now that this manuscript will be completed. I've also finally heard the message that writing isn't something other people do as I'm currently enrolled in the Advanced Fiction Writing course at the Australian Writers' Centre and I've done Natasha Lester's Two Hours to Scrivener Power course, which is possibly the best four hours I've ever (laughs) invested in because I've gone through it twice. This app so perfectly suits my writing style and practice and I've submitted a poem to a poetry competition, my first ever submission. Goodness me, it's all happening. All happening for Lane or Laney. Val and Al, thank you for the podcast and thank you for coming into my life because of you I feel like my own story is finally about to begin. Oh, that's just beautiful. I'm speechless. I've got a tear in my eye. Yes, that's fantastic. Well, I have good. to tell you, Lane, if your if your mm. uh, book is anything like your review, yeah. it will be highly entertaining. <laughs> highly entertaining. So keep going. Get yeah. it finished. Absolutely, keep going. We're so thrilled to hear this. Like, um, oh, that's just uh, warms the cockles of my heart. And I, you know what? I don't think I've ever been described as a helpful little flea before. So, you know, there's a first. It's, it's a wonderful compliment, Al. <laughs> so. Wonderful. So thank you, Lane or Laney. Really appreciate it. And if you have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it because it really helps us um, in the rankings on iTunes. And that brings us to something about rankings. Uh, what happened this week in terms of a big announcement from Book Riot, Al? Well, excitingly, we were named as Outstanding, Valerie. Outstanding. Outstanding. In the uh, 30 Outstanding Podcasts list that Book Riot has put together, uh, 30 Outstanding Podcasts for Writers. And there we were at number 27, just scraping in, but (laughs) just scraping in is good enough for me. (laughs) And it was an international list, wasn't it? It It was was. a global list because Book Riot, that's R-I-O-T, Book Riot, is a very, very well-respected website and it's a US-based website and they have curated the 30 most outstanding outstanding podcasts Mm. in the world and um we were so thrilled to be listed as one of them in there with grammar girl you know it's no better than that does it i was very excited very excited so thank you to all our listeners for helping us get there really appreciate it we do thank you so shall we move on to the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week Let's, Valerie. What have you got for us? Well, this is from the Huffington Post and it's an interesting article called Are You Writing a Hybrid Book? Now, I thought it was interesting. It's written by Brooke Warner because of the trend of hybrid everything these days, particularly mm. in the publishing industry. Mm. Now, of course, there are hybr- there's um, hybrid authors 
which refers to authors who have been published traditionally, but also who are self-publishing. Sometimes they are Mm -hmm. self-publishing their back catalogue. And then there are hybrid publishing arrangements, and I'm seeing this more and more and more. So you've got traditional publishing, you've got self-publishing where you take care of it all yourself, but there's also the nexus of the two, which is the hybrid publishing arrangement, and that's where you will split the costs and the royalties with sort of someone who acts similarly to a traditional publisher in that they will... Um, help you with the production. They have the expertise to help you in the production and the editing and that sort of thing, but it is still reliant on you to market and sell the book in many ways. Mm. So yes, there's hybrid authors and hybrid, hybrid publishing arrangements, but of course, in you know, for a long time, there have been hybrid books, and this is the one that is most relevant to the in terms of an impact on your readers. Because mm. whether you are a hybrid author or a hybrid publisher, that kind of doesn't impact the way your readers see you, but a hybrid book certainly does, and that is where there's a cross of genres or a blend of genres. And the way it impacts your readers or the, your reader behavior is that even if you have a hybrid book, that's all fine and, you know, go for it, make your hybrid book, whatever satisfy you, satisfies you creatively. Mm. However, you always need to think of your reader and have them in mind in terms of where they are going to buy your book because they need to have an understanding of where your book is and the bookseller needs to have, have an understanding of where to put your book. Mm. So is your book actually crime or is it really romance or is it really self-help or is it really business or is it really what? So that's so important just for you to think about if it's going to tend to one way or another and to help in your marketing materials and collaterals, your bookseller to know how to effectively pigeonhole you because they've got to put your book somewhere and you want it in the best possible place. You do and booksellers do like to know where to put you on the shelf. They don't yes. like um, they don't like confusion because they're selling a book to somebody and if that person doesn't get what they expect, then they don't necessarily go back to that bookseller. Do you know what I mean? So yes. it impacts all the way down the line. So you really have to be able to clearly explain what it is you're doing. And you can mix things up. Like there's a lot of romance, you know, with crime, you know, elements in it and that sort of stuff, even historical romance, crime elements, etc. Um, But if you're kind of trying to mix uh, two things that are very disparate, mm. then you've really got to think about, is your story actually more one thing than the other or can you make it more one thing than the other so that you actually have got somewhere to put it on the bookshelf? Yes, definitely. Mm. So if you are thinking or you are currently writing a hybrid book, uh, make sure you bear that in mind. Very, very important. Mm. So I came across another little link that was kind of cute because it was a great idea. This was in a website called forward.com and it's written an article that's um, about a bunch of poets who just go to, you know, parks or public places and they will write poems about anything. (laughs) All right. So it says here, armed with their typewriters, and I love the fact that they're actually using these old-fashioned typewriters, you know, because then you don't need electricity and they can just put the piece of paper in there and whip up whip up a poem and give it to a customer or a passerby. Armed with their typewriters and the whims 
of passers-by as inspiration, a number of writers are seeking to bring the craft of poetry to the masses by writing poems on request for people on the street. So one of them, Bill Keys, can often be found in the depths of Washington Square Park or Central Park, where he will sit with his poems about anyone or anything sign and wait for strollers to come up to him and request poems by donation. Goodness me. Goodness me. Talk about pressure. Like I find it interesting here. You know, there's a paragraph in this story that says typing the verses up on his 1971 Corona typewriter and there's an image of Bill Keys. It's actually worth going to the link just to have a look at Bill. Yes. There's a black and white image there of him. He could be from the 50s. He's got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and he's got his 1971 Corona typewriter. Okay, not the 50s, the 70s. Yes. Um, Keyes said that writing a poem in 10 minutes while people stand and wait for the results can be stressful, I can imagine. He is not always happy with the work he produces. Mm-hmm. But then he says, my main intention is not to write a great poem, said Keyes. My main intention is to give that person something beautiful. So I think it's a really interesting idea. I think it's a great idea. I wish we could see more of it. And I suppose it's not very different to, you know, when you go to the park and people will sketch your silhouette or sketch your picture. It's like that, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of poems are us. (laughs) Exactly. But it's good to kind of bring this, bring the art form to the people in a sense. Mm. Mm. So let's move on to another link. I love this link because I just think it's such a cute idea. I wanted to do this before, but I never got round to it. But anyway, this is a link that's from Gizmodo and we will put the link in the show notes, which you can find at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. But anyway, this article on Gizmodo is called Use This Predictive text generator to write the best internet fan fiction. (laughs) 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 And it opens with the line, Batman isn't paid to destroy crime corners. He is actually attracted to the crimes and also the penguin. (laughs) (laughs) Which is... Which is true. (laughs) It's a line from the internet story, Batman loves him a criminal. Um, And it says, which may at first glance seem like a poorly written piece of fan fiction, but in actuality was created by a predictive text generator. It was posted on Tumblr last week. So I always wanted to do this, but I just, you know, it's just one of those someday things, but obviously somebody has beat me to it. You know how you can have predictive text on your phone. Mm-hmm. Well, in particular, when I did have a BlackBerry, it just had a really awesome, a much, much more sophisticated, it seemed, predictive text um, than, say, your iPhone or, or other smartphones. I ju- it just had this really powerful predictive text function. And I wanted to film the screen as I was started writing a story because it actually not only predicted that um, than that word, it predicted in some cases that phrase or the entire sentence. Oh. Yeah, so I wanted to write a whole short story using predictive text, but of course it's one of those things that I just never got round with round to and somebody else has done it. So I just think it's a really cute idea and you know, it's it's a bit weird, but who knows? One day a whole oh, story It's probably just gonna be a thing and <laughs> Predictive text will be writing all our literature in 10 years' time. Maybe there's a science fiction novel in this. Yes, possibly. Mm -hmm. So anyway, just a cute idea, but let's move on to another link, which is from Quartz, which is actually qz.com. 
course. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's called Maverick Women Writers Are Upending the Book Industry and Selling million, Millions mm-hmm. in the Process. And it's actually a very long uh, post. So if you're interested in self-publishing or romance, this is a must read. Okay. Why? Yeah, but, and Tell me why. Lots of reasons because, and we only have time to go through a few things. Um, but some of the things I founded, uh, I founded, <laughs> I found <laughs> quite interesting was um, the author H.M. Ward says, I just wanted to, uh, I just wanted a story with a nice guy. And it was, it starred a woman named Sydney and a man named Peter, who was an impossibly nice guy combo, handsome, strong, smart, patient, and oh, super wealthy. Mm. So she had been writing that for some years, gone down the traditional publishing route, you know, shopped it around, found an agent, and kept being told, um, if you take a nice guy book to traditional publishers, they're like, that's weird, nice guys are boring. Because apparently we all like bad boys or something. I don't really know. Hmm. <laughs> so she got sick of that and out of curiosity, she put it up online, you know, self-published it a few right. years later. And it 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 went nuts. So right. it was called Damaged and it shot to number six in the Kindle store within a few days and held the number one spot for several weeks. So yeah, it was the first in two, in, first out out of a two in a series of nice guy books. <laughs> that's a thing, nice that's guy a, books. That's a thing. Okay, yeah. that <laughs> that would go on to sell twelve million copies in three years. And basically, <gasps> this is yeah, it's not bad, right? And publishers obviously started paying attention. Um, and in the year after she published it, she was offered a series of deals from various publishers totaling one point five million dollars. But she said no. Turn them all down because she was already making eight figures. Eight figures. Hear that? Eight figures. (laughs) Uh, I'm just going, wow, really? (laughs) As a self published author. And she said, Out of nice guys. Out of nice guys. Yes. Out of nice guys. And she says, It would have been a colossal mistake to sign with them at that point. financially. So that's just uh, one of the anecdotes in this link, which is really about romance and self-publishing. And there's just a few interesting um, points in this article. And one which I thought was interesting was that according to the romance writers, you know, of America, 82% of romance readers or people who buy romance books are – women, which, of course, I'm not surprised it's a high percentage. I was going to say, really? Yeah, but I thought it would <laughs> be like... Why are you surprised? No, no, I thought it'd be like 95. 98. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying, 18% of men. Yeah. So... Yeah, okay. I'm a little surprised by that too. I thought that was interesting and um, a little bit unusual. Um, and another point in this uh, article is that one particular author, um, she... She she was also a um, uh, self-published author and she built her community through online communities, basically Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she, it, it, people, it, she says people were saying you couldn't turn Facebook fans into readers. Not true. 
a big part of my success definitely comes from Facebook. And she says um, that she has a small team that includes her husband, and but she's the main force behind her marketing and social media. Uh, in, in fact, in the beginning, before Ward had sold even one book, she spent time attracting readers to her Facebook page, which is something mm-hmm. that we say to people. We do talk about that a lot, yes, don't we, Valerie? In building your author platform, start mm-hmm. before you release your books. Mm-hmm. So she had already, get this, she had already amassed 30,000 excited fans before she published her debut novel. 30,000? Yeah. Yep. I'm looking her up immediately. <laughs> yes, yes. I built it, she says, I built it over a six-month period, one fan at a time. Everyone starts small. It's gumption and vision that determine if you'll succeed after you have that first reader. And wow. here's another interesting one. Lauren Blakely who is um, self-published. She's the author of Seductive Nights. Well, you know, because this is about romance. Mm. She says that straight going straight to her fans as opposed to going through, you know, the editor, the publisher, the publicist, the this, the that – is a huge part of her her success. And she says – because she sold more than one million self-published copies. Mm. And – but to achieve that, she spends – get this – four hours a day engaging with her fans and community on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Goodreads. But also, because um, self-pub, uh, sorry, her name, Lauren Blakely, is a pseudonym because mm-hmm. she actually uh, publishes under her real name, which I don't know, it doesn't say what it is, right. uh, un- uh, through a traditional uh, publishing. And right. she has published six young adult novels through traditional publishing under a different name, none of which have met their advances. Wow. But she's gone, as a self-publisher under a different name, she's gone nuts. That's interesting, isn't it? And just uh, as a heads up, further on in our program today with our author, um, in our writer-in-residence interview, we have quite an interesting conversation about this very, very matter. And it's it's from a surprising quarter. So mm. I'll just leave you in suspense for a moment. But that's interesting. I just think it's fascinating that... Um, it, it works particularly well with certain genres and romance is yes. definitely one of them, definitely yeah. one of them because romance readers, and I think they even talk about this in the extensive article that you've got here for us, mm. they buy, you know, they'll go into a into a bookstore or online and they'll buy eight to ten titles at a time because mm. they are addicted to it and generally speaking romance is a relatively short read. It's not a, you know, it's not like a an investment of, of, you know, weeks and weeks of your life to get through it. Yes. So they will buy, they buy a lot because they also, generally speaking, romance novels, both traditionally published and also online, are relatively inexpensive. Yes. And that's, they do that for a reason. I mean, you know, the whole model comes from Harlequin. Harlequin set the whole industry up, you know, in the 50s and pretty and self-publishers tend to follow much the same much the same model, they're just doing it for themselves. So your books are inexpensive. You're putting out a lot of books a year is the other key to, you know, good money in romance. You know, they're publishing a lot of books a year. Like even, you know, 20, 30 years ago, if you were going to sign a contract with with Harlequin, you were signing up to do minimum three to four books a year. Mm. Um, And, you know, you're talking category romance, so you're talking – 
50 to 65,000 words probably for most of them. Some of the longer titles are, are, are up there a bit higher, around the 80,000 word mark, but generally speaking, 50 to 65,000, depending on the line that you were writing for, mm. um, very targeted. Like, you know, they know what their readers want and they yeah. write for that reader. So you have your ideal reader in mind, you're writing a book, you give them what they expect. You know, if you're writing like a, a sexy romance, you don't shut the bedroom door. You know exactly, you know, readers know exactly what they're getting. If they pick up a sweet romance, they know that there's no sex. If they pick up a, you know, whatever, they know that there's hot and heavy and it's all going on. So you just, um, you know, so that Harlequin set up a great model for self-publishers like, you know, a long time ago. So it's an interesting thing how that they, they are following that model doing their own promotion um, and it's a branding thing because mm. again with romance while people will buy you know a lot of romance readers will buy everything in the harlequin you know sweet line yes. they have favorites and they you know if if a, a particular author puts a book out that will go nuts yes um, so they're looking for you know that you you want to become a favorite and you want people looking for your book simple Absolutely. And I love what Laura Bradford, who's a literary agent, says in this article, romance readers are a really, really different animal from any other kind of reader out there. They are incredibly voracious. They consume content like locusts. Like locusts? (laughs) Wow. We've got a few insects in this episode, haven't we? Yeah, it's it's all happening. It is all happening. We've had, I have to say, I, I think anyone who sort of like was picking up our podcast over the last three or four episodes would be thinking that we were, um, um, encouraging the entire world to become romance writers. We have discussed this quite a lot lately, haven't we? Yes, we Next have. Next time ah, but we're changing tack. Yes. Month, so be prepared. Yes, next week, there, mm. I mean next month, there will be a different focus. So that's more suspense for you. Mm. Now, let's move on to our giveaway for this week. It's, a la- it's the last week of our big book pack of five books and you can win you have a chance to win. You just need to enter at writerscentercomau slash win. And the book pack that you can win includes Rosetta by Alexandra Joel, Lady Helen and the Dark Days Club by Alison Goodman, The Japanese Lover by Isabel Allende, The Beekeeper's Secret by Josephine Moon, and A Girl's Best Friend by Lindsay Kelk. So entries close Monday the 1st of August 2016. But if you find yourself listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry, just go to that URL and there will be a new competition and prize that you can win as well. So writercentercomau slash win. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Inside Publishing, gives you a peek inside the complex world of publishing. Created by author of more than 30 books, Pamela Freeman, who also writes as Pamela Hart, the course gives you a step-by-step guide on everything you need to know about the publishing process and how this should affect your writing, pitching and submissions. It's essential information if you want to navigate the publishing world and get the best chance for your book success. You'll learn about the copyright issues that will affect you, what territories you need to negotiate for, and how ebooks and audiobooks will impact your income. You'll also discover whether indie publishing or traditional publishing is better for your goals. With our on-demand courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentercomau slash publishing.
All right. Are you ready for this week's Word of the Week, Al? I could not be more ready. (laughs) Poised. I am poised. This will be an interesting one to see how everyone includes this in their blog posts because, of course, there's a whole bunch of listeners who are doing a little bit of a challenge where they're going to write a blog post that include the Word of the Week. So this week's Word of the Week is ineluctable. Ineluctable. <laughs> that is like the ugliest word. It's not that attractive, is it? It is an so, ugly word. Yeah. I can't imagine even trying to put that into a sentence in just general conversation. But anyway, tell no. us more. Please tell us more. <laughs> well, ineluctable is I-N-E-L-U-C-T-A-B-L-E, ineluctable. And it means impossible to avoid or inescapable. So it comes from the Latin to struggle. So you might say something like, oh, well, that reached its ineluctable conclusion Mm -hmm. or that it is ineluctable that my cat Rex is going to land a modelling deal one day soon because of his amazing beauty. (laughs) Right. Okay. I'm still saying it's an ugly word. (laughs) It is ineluctable that I would ever use that in a sentence. (laughs) Yes, but it is possible. To, to use it in a sentence. It is um, so, yeah, give that a go, everyone. Ineluctable. Good because luck with that. <laughs> now, I don't like um, pick these words out of the air or pick these. Where do you get them from? Well, I don't pick them out of, you know, books like uh, books of hard words oh, or anything like that. No. Most of 99% of the words of the week actually come from actual books I'm reading. And I go, wow, that's a really rare word. And. And it, what's interesting is when the same author, well, when that author uses it multiple times, so it's obviously a, a word thing for them. How funny. Yeah. So that word someone has used more than once in, in the writing of a book. Not, not all of them. No, right. that word possibly not. But mm. there are some very rare words that, that just some authors have a thing about. I found, um, myself, <laughs> I found myself using, so I was on my last day of the current, like I'm having a hiatus on write a book with Al hashtag at the moment. Oh. Oh, okay. um, because I'm editing. Oh, yes. So last Friday I was furiously writing, trying to get as many words down as I could before I, you know, went upon my self-imposed hiatus. Mm. And I found that I had used the word clutch, clutch, oh, yes, well, like three or four times within a thousand words. Really? I know. Ooh. I don't know what was going on. There was like a lot of a clutch well, bag. <laughs> no, as in clutching the side yes. of gripping and clutching and, you know, clinging and stuff. like It was, it was one of those kind of situations. Yes. But clutching was the word that I, you know, clutching something to you. It yes. was, yeah, I was nuts. And like, it's not a word that I use regularly. In, in conversation. No, I would use it more often than I would use ineluctable. <laughs> but nonetheless, I just sort of thought, what's going on there? Obviously, there's some kind of like little, um, I don't know, stopping point in my brain that won't allow my the thesaurus stopped at clutch I got no further (laughs) so of course hashtag write a book with Al was a great challenge that you had over the past sort of month or several weeks where people could write their own book along with you and post their word count and all that sort of thing are you doing edit a book with Al no, I'm no, I'm not because I just I honestly think that I just probably because I I have been editing the book at the same time as I've been doing write a book with Al. Mm. So I I wrote so I started on June the first, 
um, and I've just I've just gone on holidays for a minute uh, as of last Friday at around about the forty seven thousand word mark. Oh, that's um, a lot. Yeah, so it's cruising along. I've only got about I've probably got about another two chapters. There's probably only about eight to ten thousand words left in the in the current manuscript that I'm working on, but I realised that. Um, I've done a lot of like really good groundwork for this edit and I've got a lot of notes and I'm, I'm ready to roll and I've started doing bits and pieces, but I, I, I can't, here we go. I just can't edit something and write something else at the same yes. time. I'm finding that I'm getting myself into an absolute mess. So I decided what I needed to do was concentrate on the deadline because, mm. you know, as we know, the deadline comes first and the deadline is this Friday. The so deadline is ineluctable. The ineluctable. <laughs> So I only have, I've only really got, you know, a week to finish this edit and I want to obviously do a great job. So I've decided just to put the whole write a book with Al on hold for a week, but I'll be back next week um, because I've still got 10,000 words, you know, eight to 10,000 words to go. So, you know, if you're writing with me, I am coming back. I just need a little moment to straighten my head out with this other book. Awesome. Hmm. So let's move on now to our writer in residence this week. Who have we got? Well... We've got John Birmingham, which Yay! is just, yeah, which is brilliant because um, I'm a long-time admirer of John's work. I read uh, he died with a falafel in his hand back in the 90s, mm. as did everyone else who'd ever lived in a share house mm-hmm. and um, absolutely adored it. And I've been a great fan. He does a brilliant job with uh, features and with his columns and with all the various things that he does. And I love, I follow him on Twitter because he, I find him highly entertaining. And I have him to thank for my Fitbit because I remember oh. several years ago, um, he he put up a, a little th- tweet saying that he got a Fitbit and he had lost quite a bit of weight oh. over, you know, a couple of months because it had just reminded him how little he actually moved when he was busy with deadlines, which, you know, mm. he's he's – he writes all the things. So he's doing nonfiction fiction. He's, uh, he's self-publishing. He's traditionally publishing. He's doing columns. You know, this is a man who, um, who, who approaches writing in a very professional way. And so when I saw that he had a book out, which has just come out recently called How to Be a Writer, I thought, aha, this is my moment. I'm going to speak to John about all these things. And so I read his book and it's a really great book. Like it comes with a bit of a language warning. It's like being caught up in a bit of a hurricane because it's, he, his, you know, writing is, is quite frenetic. Um, but he, he preaches, you know, to me, he's preaching to the converted because I agree with all the things he says. It's, it's about approaching the work, you know, like a job and getting the work done. Um, so, then I have to confess before we go any further with this that I psyched myself out of this interview entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, I know. It still happens. I'm just saying, you know, people, I, I talk to um, new writers all the time and they, they talk about how nervous they get about interviews and I'm like, yeah, what are you talking about? But um, every once in a while one comes along that I find myself in exactly the same boat. I just, I, and I think it's because I do, you know, admire John's work and he is a really good interviewer. Mm-hmm. And so interviewing a really good interviewer is a difficult proposition. So I found myself in a bit of a mess and then we had some technical issues. And honestly, like by the time I'd finished the interview, I needed a good lie down. (laughs) However, it is a fantastic interview and he has got so many interesting things to say. And I really hope you guys um, enjoy it as much as, as I did once I'd recovered from my moment. 
John Birmingham writes a lot. His 1994 memoir, He Died with a Falafel in His Hand, has become a classic, but he also writes fiction such as the Axis of Time trilogy, non-fiction such as Leviathan, the unauthorised biography of Sydney, regular columns for the Sydney Morning Herald, a popular blog, and more. His new release is called How to Be a Writer. It promises that it won't teach you how to write, but it will show you, among other things, how to smash deadlines, nail your writing routine, and promote yourself without seeming like a wanker. So here is John, who's going to promote his book without seeming like a wanker. Hi, Alison. Welcome to the program. All right, let's go way back to the beginning in the mists of time and talk about how you got started. Uh, you were writing features for magazines like Rolling Stone and Penthouse, and then in 1994, out came He Died with a Falafel in His Hand. How did that actually come about? Do you remember your start in publishing? Uh, I do. I wrote for uh, about 10 years. I wrote for magazines before Falafel mm-hmm. was published. And um, I uh, ended up writing Falafel almost as a uh, as a commission, just like a magazine story. And it was because one of the mags I worked for was going out of business. It was a fantastic publication called The Independent Monthly. And um, it was very high quality. Uh, it, it demanded... Um, a lot of rigor from its writers, but it, it paid them properly for the demands that it made. And so consequently, of course, it went out of business. Um, <laughs> and Always the way. I, I remember coming into the mag one day and, uh, you know, if you freelance long enough, you, you, you will work for a magazine or a newspaper that's going out of business. And you can just tell you just, the stink of death is everywhere when you, mm. you come in and I, I, went to uh, Michael Duffy, who was the deputy editor at that point, and um, said, Michael, that, uh, that, that smells like death. <laughs> he went, yes, yes, death is upon us. Um, but he had an exit plan. Everybody always has an exit plan, and his was to set up a publishing company. And he had a, um, he had a need for a stocking stuffer for Christmas. I think we were having this discussion probably June or July and he asked me if I could get him a funny book together in five weeks and he would get it out by I think September so he'd get the um, uh, the Father's Day um, sales and then I'd give it another push for Christmas. Uh, I, you know, I said I could do that because we, we both work magazines. It just you know, I was quite used to the idea of taking on, uh, you know, a commission delivering by a certain amount of time. This happened to be 50,000 words rather than 3,000, but I approached for that the same way that I approached, uh, uh, I approached for the same way that I approached um, magazine stories, which was that I just uh, made a list of people I needed to interview. In this case, ex-flatmates rang them up, got the interview, transcribed it, and then cut and pasted it into, uh, you know, what was hopefully a, a coherent whole. And it, it was done in, in about five weeks. All right. So did you imagine that Falafel would ever become what it did? Like, were you writing it thinking, oh, yes, this is a cult classic for sure? Or was it a surprise to you when it was taken up the way it did and sort of loomed so large in your life for so long? I was uh, eventually... Uh, really surprised and, and obviously gratified by the, um, the success of the book. I, I thought it would be conventionally successful. I, I, I reckon like, you know, I've, I've been writing for years. I knew what, um, you know, what, 
what kind of things people like to write. I recognise this is a reasonably funny book. And um, I thought it might sell a couple of thousand copies in the inner city of Sydney and Melbourne because it was a, a funny book. Mm. Uh, I, I didn't expect much more than that. Um, I, I pretty much wrote it for the, the advance, the commission, mm. whatever. Uh, and then it came out and it wasn't successful at all. It, it, it died in the arse, um, to tell okay. the truth. It, right. uh, it, I think, was, uh, well, it was an independent publisher for a start and mm. Michael didn't have a uh, he didn't have a distribution network so he was hiring independent distributors and they were competing with the sales reps from the big five big six publishers and mm. this book it was an odd shape it was uh, initially square which was a, a sort of reference slash homage to uh, Generation X, which mm. in its first edition was was square-shaped. And booksellers hate that because it sticks out from the, the mm. shelves and you have to, unless you want this thing with its ass hanging out in your shop, you have to turn it around so that the cover faces out. And they hate doing that because that's actually an income stream for publishers. When you see a book turned out so you can see the cover in a bookshop, that's because a publisher paid the bookstore to do that. Um so they hated it, uh, and the um, you know the the uh, it was obviously it, it didn't have a big publisher behind it, and it was about six months before it got any traction. And I think the only reason it got traction is because the guy who was distributing it in Brisbane had read it and really liked it. He he got behind it. Okay, uh, he, and he was he was like a little independent guy. He used to drive around to bookstores with boxes of this thing in the back of his uh, his station wagon, and he just would not let go. Uh, Michael and I had pretty much given up; like we figured the whole thing was just a disastrous failure. But this guy would not give up, and he just kept hammering it and hammering it. And I guess it was out there long enough, um, and it, it didn't get remainded, probably because Michael had bet his house on it. Mm. Um, that it, it picked up a couple of readers and, uh, you know, word of mouth kicked in. And once that happened, then it took off. And once it took off, it was a very, very fast acceleration. It, uh, it just it started to, to blow through five, 10, 15,000 copies sold a month and, um, wow. and stayed at that level for, for a long time. So the power of one rabid fan right there. Yeah. yeah that, I, that, I hope uh, you sent him champagne. Uh, I think we did. I, I think, well, he certainly, you know, he he was a distributor, so he got a um, he got a, a reasonable percentage of, oh, the, of course. Uh, the profits, uh, and I uh, I was more than happy for him to to trouser the loot. <laughs> so after it came out, and it was it, it eventually was a great success. You then I, I was interested in the chapter in your book where you talked about what you wrote next, and you wrote Leviathan nonfiction, the story of Sydney. And you even say in your book that it had to be a writer, that this is a conscious decision that you avoided the lure of falafel, the sequel, falafel returns mm-hmm. and other yeah. other things like that, which is, is an interesting thing because particularly now it seems like if you write something that is successful, there seems to be this pressure on you to write the same but different again and again and again. So did you – you know why? Why not write something similar but different to capitalise on the success of that first book? Uh, I knew that was the that was the road to madness. Um, I you know that that book was very much it was based on interviews. Uh, like people ask how much of the book is true, and pretty much all of it. Mm. Uh, 
you know, obviously I changed names and I changed the order of events, but they're, they're true stories from, from my share housing life and the, the, the lives of the people that I, I shared with. And mm. so I had, I had a finite number of those stories. They didn't all make it into falafel simply because I only had five weeks to write it and I just mm. ran out of time. Uh, but I did have a finite number of stories and once the book started selling, obviously I stopped living in share housing because I didn't have to anymore. So uh, I I could have just put the word out for more stories mm. uh, and I could have collected them. But because the stories I, I put in the book were either mine or from people I had lived with, I was organically connected to them. Whereas if I just, if I went on Twitter or Facebook now and said, oh, I want to do falafel too, give me your stories, I'd have enough to fill. 40 or 50,000 words very quickly, but they mm. wouldn't be my stories. And you would just feel that on every page of the book mm. and it, it wouldn't be the same. And I, I wanted to avoid that, that, that trap because I knew publishers would be more than happy to drop me in there because for them it's diminishing returns, but it's still a pretty good return. And eventually at Falafel 3 or 4, they'd stop doing it, but it, it wouldn't matter because they'd have banked some pretty serious uh coin before then but i'd be left as a joke oh he's that guy that you know couldn't write anything but sharehouse stories yeah whereas i had spent 10 years before falafel working across a number of magazines doing very different stories depending on who was paying my commission that week and so that was why i went in a very different direction and um and wrote Leviathan. Mm. So, you know, even now, all these years later, you're still writing all of the things, aren't you? You're still writing mm. fiction and non-fiction and columns and, and all sorts of different things, as well as doing festivals and publicity and all the other essentials of an author's life. Yeah. Why do you do that? Is it is it because you like the variety of writing a million different things? Um, you know, is there one thing you prefer to write above all others or do you just equally like writing different things? Uh, there are things I, I, um, I, I suppose there are things I like writing less. There are jobs I've taken on as a freelancer just to pay bills that I, I really didn't want to take on. Uh, I, I used to do a lot of sports writing mm. and I enjoyed, um, I enjoyed writing quirky sports stories like, um, you know, I, I, I profiled the worst amateur rugby team in Sydney once and that that ended up winning a Carlton and United sports writing prize and was great fun to do and mm. I, I loved doing it and I, I went out to a country town called Narromine and spent a week out there following the players of the backwater cricket club and, and writing them and profiling them as though they were in the national team and I really <laughs> really enjoyed doing that um, but if you assigned me to go write a conventional 3,000-word piece on, say, Manly Football Club, as Inside Sport did one day, that, that, that was death on a stick and I hated it. I, I did it because, you know, I had bills to pay, but I really, really didn't enjoy it. And you can see it. It's just it's a lame, limp, you know, dud of a story because I wasn't into it. Um, but, I, you know, there's, there's all sorts of different things that I like to read and uh, I, I tend to write in the areas that I, I like to read in. So, uh, you know, I've written a lot of uh, technology 
coverage over mm-hmm. the years because it's yeah. just an area I'm interested in. Um, I've done a lot of food writing, often without my byline on because I like I like to eat. And okay. uh, I'm very interested in the culinary arts and I'm quite happy to write anonymous reviews for people like Good Food Guide because it means I get paid to go out and, and eat. And do what you like. <laughs> okay. So how many different things are you generally working on at once? Are you are you sort of like across a whole range of different things or do you try to stagger things so they're at different stages or how do you work with that? With uh, I, I, divide, uh, I divide my work time between uh, long form and, and short form. Mm-hmm. So uh, the books that I write are a separate business line from the, the media work that I do. Mm-hmm. And the books are... They're really the main earner because if you know if a if a book goes off, it's going to earn an enormous amount of money. But also, there's a great freedom with writing books. You're not immediately answerable to an editor. You're not trying to fit within a house style. You don't have a deadline tomorrow morning. You know, a, a book is due, particularly if you're self-publishing it. It's due when you want to, you know, put when it you're in. Ready? Yeah. So uh, yeah, a, a book is due when you're ready to to turn it in. It's, there's a great quote, I can't recall who it's from, um, uh, but it says, uh, no work of art is ever finished, it is merely abandoned. Yes. And, uh, that, that's, that's very true of books. You just eventually just give up on them and hand them over to the, the publisher. Um, so with books, I, I'm actually standing next to my whiteboard at the moment and I can see on my whiteboard in various... Uh, Colors of ink. I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, eleven books. Obviously, I'm not working on eleven wow. books at once. So, so this is my you know, schedule for the next three years, effectively. Um, and at any given time, I will have what I call my primary project and yeah. my secondary project. So, my primary project is it's it's the thing I'm working on most at the moment. So, right now. That is Stalin's Hammer Paris, the, the last book in the Stalin's Hammer sequence. Um, I've given myself a deadline of August 5 for that. And being the primary project, what that means is that every day I come down to my office, I try to turn the computer on by 8.30, and then I start rolling out the Pomodori, which is a, a reference to a time management technique. Which Pomodori I'm going to ask you about in detail yeah. in a little while because uh, it kind of underpins a hot like that and the routine underpins yep. so much of what you do doesn't it it does yeah, yeah. so the um, the primary uh project gets a minimum of four hours a day and i try to start at eight thirty. i i don't obsess about doing my four hours by say twelve thirty or 1 or one thirty. um i I'll, I'll work in say two hour blocks uh, or two blocks off two hours and I'll have a little break in between for a cup of tea. I might read a comic book or something like that. And um, once I've done those four hours, that's effectively it. If I wanted to go play some video games or, you know, surf or whatever, I could. Generally what happens though is I might go to the gym or I might have some lunch and then I'll come back and I've got another hour or so in the afternoon before I have to start wrangling kids (laughs) after school. And so that hour is my secondary project. And at the moment, my secondary project is uh, a conventionally trade-published science fiction book, which is probably two years away from publication. It's called uh, The Cruel Stars. And I'm in the process of just working out my character arcs and my story beats 
And so for an hour or so a day, I will sit around scratching my head, staring into the middle distance, working on that, that, that secondary project. Now, at the same time as I'm doing that, I also have other things uh, in my media work, which are just so every week I've got uh, a blog I have to file for Fairfax. And um, I do a lot of corporate writing. Uh, I'm doing some work for uh, one of the banks at the moment. And I have to fly out to Sydney, I think, next Monday to do that. So that also gets slotted in. And often when I'm doing that work, I will just give up on the book writing for the day. And so I go, you know, okay, today is the day that I'm doing, you know, this particular type of media work. And uh, I just quarantine that day. I go, I go do it and I send off the invoice and then I go back to the books. Wow. So, okay, so let's talk about this because this is – this is not how people think that professional writers work. I mean, people like you, uh, people would look at you and go, oh, he's written all these books. He's, you know, really successful. He's probably sitting around being fed peeled grapes and just writing when he feels like it. And you talk about the the light bulb moment and, and how, you know, you, you, you're sort of not particularly positive about the light bulb moment um, in your book, which I, te- I mean, I agree with you. And I, a routine is a deeply unsexy thing. Yeah. And it is not what people like to talk about when it comes to to writers, but it is it underpins oh, yeah, a professional is. writer's life, doesn't it? Yeah, it is. It's it's hugely uh, important, and it it, it uh, even like after twenty or thirty years, it it, it remains important. I um, I found myself not blocked uh, recently, but um, just. Uh, trapped I guess um I, I was trying to move a project forward and I just I couldn't I just had that experience that everyone will have had where uh, you know I was going to my computer every day and I was just getting distracted by bullshit and um I was finding other things to do and I would I would jump on uh any opportunity uh to to get away from that thing and so and you know I'm very good at framing distractions and disruptions as you know alternative forms of productivity so, mm, aren't you know, we all <laughs> you know if i'm ditzing around on news sites well you know part of what i do is being a journalist i should be reading the news it's, it's all excuses and, and and rubbish and i i dealt with that by going back to first principles which is that i structure my day um by working in you know half hour blocks which I put together into two hour blocks and you know and I just I said look you're obviously feeling some sense of uh resistance to to getting this job done um why don't you just accept that uh you have another job that is the grass is always greener Alison like if you're working on one book there's always another book that would be more fun to work on and so I actually used that um I was having trouble getting through Paris and I was finding myself thinking about uh, the cruel stars and I'm doing things like, uh, you know, I've got research I need to do for that. So I was reading, um, there's a couple of cool books that came out a few years ago, uh, the physics of Star Trek. And I just found myself sitting around, you know, reading those instead of doing any work. And I said, okay, well, obviously you want to work on the cruel stars. So tomorrow, this is what we're going to do. I spend a lot of time talking to myself. I was uh, going to say, it's hilarious. I love the way you speak to yourself like you're someone else. But, yeah, okay, yeah. keep going. Um, yeah, well, my dog's not here at the moment. I, I talk it over with her, but uh, <laughs> she's asleep up on the deck, I think. Um, 
So I just said, look, you know, obviously you're feeling resistance to working on Paris. You want to work on Cruel Star. So tomorrow what we're going to do, we're going to come down and we're going to put an honest effort in for half an hour on Paris. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that half an hour, you're still feeling the resistance. And you know what? Fuck it. We're just going to give up on that. And we're going to go work the whole day on Cruel Stars because that's obviously what, you know, has turned your head at the moment. And so I then went down and I put the honest half hour into Paris and, you know, at the end of the half hour, I said to myself, actually to the dog, you know, well, you know, that was all right. I reckon I could do another half hour, which is the, the heart of the Pomodori technique. You just you break everything down into these um, these little bite-sized pieces. And, uh, and so just with that very, very simple technique, um, uh, like a, basically a, a psychological trick for addressing what had become a psychological malady, I managed to step around the resistance I was feeling to that project and, and you know, got back into it and was soon enough writing my, you know, three, 4,000 words a day. So just by breaking it down into th- – because, you know, essentially you can do anything for 30 minutes, right? So by so, breaking it down into a 30-minute block, you yeah. only have to write this for 30 minutes. You get yeah. to a point where actually I could probably do a bit more if I needed to. Yeah, and the important thing was I gave myself permission to give up. If I got to the end of the 30 minutes and felt that it was just hopeless and utterly futile, I gave myself permission to just give up on that project uh, because I'm doing it for myself. I'm not doing it for a publisher or a media house. So I just give up on that and I'll go work on something else. And, you know, it's something I really want to work on. I want to work out these story beats. I want to work on these character arcs. I really want to write this big honking space opera. So I have... This, this, you know, it's one of the things that writers uh, succumb to is a sense of hopelessness and futility, and it's, you know, it affects all of us. You, you ask George R. R. Martin, and he'll tell you all about it. And um, <laughs> and one way of, of of avoiding that sense of of futility, that idea that it is literally hopeless, is is to give yourself. Uh, an out and the out I gave myself was to go work on another book and just having that option was enough to lift the pall and um, so it wasn't just the fact that I was only going to work on it for half an hour if necessary it was the fact that if at the end of that half hour it wasn't working then I was going to go do something else and just giving myself permission to do that was enough strangely enough to, um, to, to break the lock you actually both traditionally publish and self-publish. Do you have a preference with those? Like, I mean, they're quite different. They require quite different skill sets. Do you agree? And, like, how do you balance those two things? Like, which of those do you prefer? Uh, that's actually that's a surprisingly difficult question to, to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I mean, there are some skill sets which uh, translate from one to the other. The writing, basically, you... you the core business of both is, is writing, but with self-publishing, you are also a publisher. Um, mm. And I, you know, I've, I've, I've had this, I had my nose rubbed in this a couple of times the last six months because I've had, uh, I, I, I buy in a lot of talent. Um, so uh, my, my, my editor or the, one of the editors I use is, is locally based, uh, Diony Fyford, who, uh, Strangely enough, or probably not strangely, in fact, um, edited my last series of books for Pan Macmillan. But Dione, like most editors, is a freelancer. She doesn't work in-house because the 
the publishers, like a lot of businesses, have been pushing their talent out the door mm-hmm. uh, and then like hiring them back at freelance rates so they don't have to pay them, you know, holidays or superannuation or sick leave or anything like that. Um, what that has meant, of course, is that that talent is now available on the open market for people like me to hire. But the uh, the cover designer that I use is a uh, I, I, he's a guy who lives in Ireland, um, and so we never talk live to each other because the time zone doesn't allow it. Uh, but if I have something like a crisis I need to address, which I, I did with the cover the other day, it, it means I have to get up at four thirty in the morning um, and, and deal with it then. And that is, uh, you know, there's, there's there's not much that's fun about that. No. Um, <laughs> or if uh, you know, I, I have some, you know, you, you will always have issues with the online bookstores uh, and they have to be dealt with because you're the publisher now. And this is a phrase that I've been muttering to myself a bit over the past six months, you're the publisher now, this is for you to deal with. Um, and yet having said that, I, I do enjoy it. Uh, it's, you know, we're coming up on the end of the month uh, as we talk today and what that means is that in a couple of days, thousands of dollars will drop into my bank account because uh, Amazon and Apple will pay me the uh, the royalties from, I don't know, three months ago, I think. It's usually two or three months before uh, you see the money. But that, you know, that two or three months, that's a lot quicker than mm. you get paid by uh, by traditional publishers. And the process the process is much more transparent. Like I know how many copies I've sold. I know, you know, roughly when and where I sold them. And I, I know when that money is going to drop. Uh, whereas with trade publishing, uh, you know, you, you, it's, it's a black box. You've got no idea what's happening in there. Mm, no so idea true. how many they've sold. Um, no idea whether or not the figures that you eventually get from them literally years later on, uh, in any way, an accurate reflection of of you know the units that they they put through, um, and so there is a great sense of empowerment and taking control of your own destiny when you uh, you publish independently. But having said that, I still work in trad publishing. I'm, I'm still writing for um, Random House in New York, and uh, very much looking forward to having the next book come out with them, you know, sometime in the far future. Do you think your position of, you know, already having such a such a sort of big readership, loyal readership as well, uh, I would imagine, is a help to you when it comes to self-publishing though, like in the sense that, you know, you have a track record that, that has been built up over many years of traditional publishing and, I mean, how much promotion, how much promotion of the books that you self-publish do you, do you do like do you put a lot of money into advertising you know through anywhere or how do you how do you do that you know handle that side of things um that's a couple of questions sorry uh, it is isn't it <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try to remember both of them. um to like to, to address the first part like does having an audience help you oh, of course it does yeah. um and uh but it's it, it helps in ways that you you might not imagine. Obviously, if there are people out there who have previously bought your books and they like your books, you know, the chances of them buying them again uh, are good and that puts you well ahead of 98 99% of people who are just throwing their work up on Amazon or iBooks or Kobo or whatever. <sighs> but having said that, it's, it's not enough. Um, you... <laughs> The thing to remember about a store like Amazon, for instance, is that it is not 
it is not a bookshop. Mm. It is a search engine for people who want to spend money. And when you approach it like that and you, you understand that what you are doing is working with an algorithm rather than a reader, you open the door to selling a lot more books than you would have sold only to the people who've read your stuff in the past. And so while I do sell books uh, you know, at Amazon and iBooks and so on to people I've sold to in the past, quite a few of my sales are to people who've never heard of me and have no idea who I am. And in a way, that's, that's kind of liberating. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I enjoy that aspect of it. But what, what I said before that, um, it's an advantage in a way you might not imagine. <sighs> Having that audience is a great resource. So, for instance, uh, if I'm self-publishing a book or indie publishing a book, one of the things I have to do is make sure that when it comes out, when you buy it, you can't tell the difference between something that I have put out under my imprint, which is uh, Gigantic Weapons Corporation. <laughs> You can't tell the difference between a, a Weapons Corp book and a Random House book or a Pan Macmillan book or a uh, you know, HarperCollins or, or Penguin book. If you just bought it electronically, for instance, uh, it, it would look exactly the same. One of the ways I can achieve that is that having a core of readers who've been with me for a long time, they are a great resource. And so when I'm... When I've completed a draft of a book, I, I can't take that book to my publisher now and say, well, you know, make it make it nice um, because I don't have a publisher. I am the publisher. So what I can do is just on my blog, for instance, say, well, you know, I've got this manuscript. Uh, if anybody would like uh, a read of the raw first or second draft usually um, so that I can get some feedback, uh, mm. let me know. And you know, 20, 30 people will put their hands up. And um, once I have that many, I sort of you know, close the door. I send out the manuscript and we actually work on it cooperatively or collaboratively in Dropbox or, or Google Docs. So they will go through and I give them permission to you know, suggest whatever changes they want. And uh, they'll pick up things like typos, obviously. But also, if they don't think a character's working, they will let me know. And... Um, you know, they're not professional editors. They're not professional publishers. They're, they're just readers. readers. But, of course, the readers in the end are the most important part of the process. Mm. So uh, by the time they have gone through and given me their feedback and I've, I've either taken it on board or, you know, gone, nah, I'm keeping it the way it is, uh, I have a much tighter manuscript and that is the manuscript that I then send off to um, someone like uh, Dione to do a, a proper professional edit. And then when she's done that, it then goes off to a, a copywriter and gets, you know, edited uh, to to industry standards so that, you know, there are no typos or you know, missing punctuation or anything like that. And, and having that, you know, I can do that because I have those readers already. Um, and it, it also helps with things like when you launch the book, uh you can say, well, the book's out. Um, I, you know, I might drop the price for the first 24 hours. So, you know, go and grab it cheap or even go and grab it free. Uh, it would be really cool if you, you know, left some reviews online. Yeah. And if you get enough of those reviews coming through, 
in a short enough time, um, the all-seeing algorithm picks you, you up. Know, picks you up, and uh, suddenly you start appearing on you know uh, lists for hot new releases, and and that this again is addressing the fact that you're not in a bookstore, you're in a search engine, uh, and as you begin to surface in that search engine, more and more potential uh, readers slash buyers can see you, and you know, it's just you, you don't. You don't need to get in front of a very large percentage of them to suddenly start spiking your sales. It's interesting, isn't it? And it, it's a I, I can I can hear in your voice and the interest you have in this that your interest in technology comes together here with your interest yeah. in writing, doesn't it? And it in does. the sense that you, I would imagine that you've probably enjoyed the research through all of this process of how it works and what you <laughs> need to do. I really did. Yeah, yeah I, okay. I spent uh, I spent about. Six to eight months um, researching uh, the indie publishing industry, and uh, I, I had enormous fun doing it. I, I like to learn stuff; it's one of the reasons that I write. So there's a lot of research involved every time you decide to tell a story. And I had, um, you know, I, I had reason to uh, to research this last year. I, I was having a, a pretty tough time of it with um, some of my traditional publishers, and uh, I, you know. Also, the media organisations I work for, you know, their business models dead. You know, Google ate that a long time ago. And I've been telling myself for five years, you, know, you really need to do something about this and and replace that income, which is, you know, sputtering and dying and, and heading towards the ends of a cliff. So um, I just, you know, I had the motivation and I... I I basically gave myself a PhD in self-publishing over six months. I just spent every day reading all the books that had been written, listening to the literally thousands of podcasts that have been made on the the topic. And um, by the end of it, I felt I knew as much as anybody in a uh, a trade publishing house's ebook division, and probably more in a lot of cases. Yeah, it's an interesting. I, I I love the way that your whole skill sets come together with this because that kind of research. Because as you say, there are a thousand billion podcasts mm. and articles and self-made self-publishing experts. And I think probably what your researching skills over all these years is giving you too is a great filter for what actually is gold amongst all of that stuff as well so that then brings me to your new book which is called how to be a writer what what's made you decide to write that like why are you writing that now look that um in a way it was an accident and yet not uh as as i said i had a i had a reasonably uh tough time of, of 2015 i had three books come out with my trade publishers and they did okay but they didn't do great and I'm, I'm used to doing great business with my books and you know, this is uh, probably a couple of reasons why that that happened um, but the bottom line was you know if you don't sell books for these guys they don't want to publish you um, and so I was looking down the barrel of that and I thought, you know what, now is the time to go in, uh, investigate that alternative income stream. And I had a, a, a sort of distant amateur interest in, in indie publishing for a while. Like I was aware of the, um, you know, the, 
the sort of the work being done and the case being made by people like Hugh Howey and, and Joe Conrath. But so I didn't at that point I didn't have any any skin in the game. But um, when the uh, when the the three Hooper books came out and um, you know didn't didn't really didn't do as well as I wanted them to and. Um, uh, you know, the publishers wanted them to. I, I then, you know, suddenly <laughs> developed an interest in, in uh, putting my own stuff out, and partly because I'd, I'd already written a couple of ebooks um, to support the Hooper series, mm-hmm. and um, I had just been going to give them to the um, the same publishers, uh, not because I expected to make any money out of them. Like writing ebooks for traditional publishers is a mugs game. You simply wouldn't do it for any reason other than um, relationship management and fan service. Uh, so I've written a couple of these things for relationship management and fan service, and suddenly they were the only eggs I had left in the basket. And I suddenly thought, oh, geez, you know, um, maybe I should be putting those out and taking the 70% royalty. Like, I don't need to sell that many of them at a royalty rate that high. Uh, it might sort of provide a bridge. And that was the, the point at which I started to look at indie publishing and um, also at what resources I had. And one of the things I had is you know, the blog I've been writing for a long, long time now. Uh, over the years, a lot of people places like Twitter and, and Facebook uh, or, or even on the blog had asked questions about, you know, the writing biz, the writing industry, and they tended to be very practical, not, you know, how do you balance a beautiful line of prose, but, you know, how, how do I get my money from this magazine? They're not paying me. And um, I just had a, did a search through the blog to see how much of this stuff I'd done over the years. I had about 30,000 words worth of copy. Wow. And I thought, oh, you know, that's, that's you know, the, the better part of a how-to book. And, um, you know, I've been thinking about investigating indie publishing for a while. I might, uh, I might spend the time researching how it's done and I will take my 30,000 words, I'll, you know, write another 15, 20,000 words and I will self-publish this book as an experiment just to see how the process works. Um, it didn't work out that way. No, I, I, had to... <laughs> no, I was going to say it didn't work out that way. <laughs> no, it didn't. Um, I had written uh, an essay for an anthology on copyright and uh, the uh, I think it was New South who, who published that book. And the... Um, uh, you know, they really liked the essay and the copyright agency who were, uh, I think, funding that project really liked the essay. And so I was talking to um, to Pippa from, from New South and she said, oh, is there anything else you're working on that we could do? And at that point, uh, you know, I was still sort of tossing up, uh, you know, what kind of relationship I'd be having sort of in the future with um, uh, Pam McMillan here and... I said, well, you know, I've got this book I was going to self-publish. Um, you can have a look at that. But if you were going to have a look at it, you know, I'm sort of honour bound to offer it to Pan. Um, and so I offered it to them and they went, nah. <laughs> so I then went back to New South and said, look, you know, yeah, sure. If you want to you back a truckload of money up to the front door, feel free. It's yours. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, is what they did, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, an actual literal truckload. Um, 
And <laughs> and, and here it is. <laughs> here it is, yeah. So they, uh, and, you know, I was happy to work with them because they, they actually did a, a great job. The, you know, the editor really pulled together what was a quite disparate bunch of blog posts effectively and turned it into um, something I was very happy to, uh, to have out in the world. Um, but I, you know, having done the initial research to do that as a self-published book uh, and having had those other uh, two, uh, two titles uh, in the Dave Hooper series, um, good to go, I thought, well, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and, and do those as well. So, And it, it, it all worked out quite nicely in the end. So, look, it's a very straightforward, I, I particularly like how straightforward it is. It's a, like, you might even say it's a quite a blunt book, How to mm. Be a Writer. There's no sugarcoating. There's no sit around and wait for the muse. There's not, none of that. Is it the kind of advice you wish someone had handed you when you were starting out? Yeah, very much so. Uh, I had some um, I had some crusty old blokes as editors and publishers uh, in media when I started out, um, thinking particularly of uh, Brian Tui and uh, Max Such, who were both ex Fairfax, and I, I got a lot of um, a lot of help and mentoring from them. Uh, and it, you know, other than putting in my copy on time and not f***ing up too badly, there wasn't much I could do to repay them because, you know, these were guys who were sort of coming down the arse end of their careers. And I always wanted to, uh, you know, somehow return the favour. But because I didn't work in uh, mainstream media, I, I was always an outsider. I always submitted my copy as a freelancer. I was never going to be, say, chief of staff, at Good Weekend mm. where I could take a bunch of younger writers under my wing and and basically show them the mistakes I'd made and say, you know, don't do that. Just just don't don't step into that big pit. The fact is a lot of this book originally grew out of people asking for help and, and you know, I was quite happy to offer it uh, and I'm very happy to have had the opportunity to, to just bundle it all up and um, you know, it, it's not the be all and end all. Is you know, you, you made the point. It's it's not going to teach you to write. Uh, I, I make the assumption that anybody buying this can probably put one word after another, and um, it's uh, it's for people who who can write or who have to write. Um, you know, st- students doing their thesis would get you know almost as much from this as. Uh, you know, some graduate of a fine arts program who wants to write their first um, their first piece of uh, heartbreaking genius literature. Um, good luck to them. <laughs> uh, see, I love that. But the, the thing I find quite interesting talking to you today is when when I'm talking to you, you have quite a calm, measured, you know, approach. Your voice, mm. you know, you're, you're, you're speaking. It's a very calm, measured approach. Whereas the book is like a hurricane, like I feel like it's like a torrent. Because yeah, and that's your writing style, isn't it? It's quite, uh, quite different to no, how yeah, you approach, you know, the interviews. It's process. a voice, yeah, 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 um, yeah. It's uh, it, it's one of the voices I have when I write. It's not the only one, but yeah. uh, I was looking when I started this project for you know, the best way to communicate this, the, the best way to, to set this book aside from from other books in um, in the, the, the genre or the field 
if you will. And I, I, I just, I liked the idea of, you know, metaphorically grabbing some, like, you know, panicky, sweating young writer by the lapels and just bitch slapping them <laughs> into uh, into submission. Right. Okay. Do it this way. Get on yeah. with it. Right. And and that is what it's all about, really. Is like, get on with it, isn't it? Really. Hmm. All right. Um, uh, I'm going to ask you for your top three tips for writers. Okay. The first is uh, you need to read. You need to read probably more than you you need to write. Uh, I mean that literally and figuratively. Uh, if you are writing for for four hours a day, you probably need to be reading for five hours a day. You mm-hmm. you, you cannot write if you don't read and and read critically. Um, That's the first one. Uh, For people who are working particularly in the the non-fiction area, uh, I would pass on the warning that was was given to me very early on and, and, you know, a a lesson learned. Uh, The story you most want to believe is the story of which you should be most Mm. sceptical. You know, that's if I had any tell uh, young would-be journalists that that would be it. Um, and uh, I think finally you really you, you need to commit to a um, to a method. Uh, you, you can't just you know, wander into a cafe and order a, a flat white and a muffin and wait for the muse to write your heartbreaking work and fucking staggering <laughs> genius. You you need to decide, you know, if I'm going to be a writer, I'm going to write and I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to be at my desk at 8.30 in the morning and I'm going to be there until 2.30 in the afternoon. And uh, you will have your own way. may not be the same as my way, but you have to settle on a working routine and you need to stick to it. Um, Stephen King has a rule. He writes 2000 words a day, every day. That's just it. Uh, that's his rule. My rules a little different, but you will need a rule and you will need to stick to it because the, the thing about writing is that it does afford you unlimited freedom for fucking up. And, uh, you know, as much as possible, you, you don't want to indulge that freedom. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, John. It's been uh, a great pleasure speaking to you in your calm, measured tone. And I um, really, I do recommend the book. I think it's a great, a great read for um, aspiring writers. It, it says all of the things that I say often, but it says them in far more colourful and interesting ways than I have ever said them. And it also um, includes advice about how to write 10,000 words. Um, but yeah, good luck with everything. Good luck with the new, uh, with the next uh, book. And uh, we look forward to uh, seeing more of your work on the shelves. Thanks, Alison. Great interview. I always love listening to John talk about his writing process. Oh, look, it's because he, he's the Pomodoro technique. The fact that he sits down, breaks his day down into 30-minute sessions, does what he needs to do, I think it's just a fascinating thing. And I, the other thing I found really interesting, like our, our little segue down there into the world of traditional publishing and self-publishing was, was a full-on tangent because, you know, as you know with any interview, you go in armed with your list of questions. Mm. Um, and then certain areas of it become so much more interesting than you ever thought they were going to be. And so you abandon half 
half your question list in an attempt to get to what you really want to know. And um, so I found that really interesting because the, he, he is a, a writer, I guess, with the perfect skill set, as we discussed in the interview, for self-publishing because he has the writing skills. He's really interested in technology, like he it's one of his freelance specialty areas. But he also, after many, many years of research and, and all that sort of stuff, has a fantastic detector for what's you know what's good and what's not so when he talks about the fact that he read eight billion articles on how to self-publish and then filtered out what was you know charlatans and useless you know that he's come down with the goods you know he knows exactly what what he's doing and it's a really interesting thing that he's um decided to go so hard in that particular area and the reasons why he's doing it and i think that Mm. um that i think i think it's a an area that a lot of authors could probably have a listen to and he does he does touch on it in his book um probably not in the the kind of uh, detail that we just discussed yeah. there, like there, but there is there's there there is a whole sort of section there on on publishing yourself and that sort of thing. But definitely worth following his blog and following him on Twitter just to just to get his the insight into the kinds of things that he's um, that he has been looking at and is researching. Yeah, definitely awesome hmm. stuff. Uh, could you hear how nervous I was? No. Yeah, probably because probably my headset was terrible. <laughs> oh, well, covered the nerves. Anyway, what I else are we talking about? Awesome. Um, okay, so let's move on to now we're all about, you and I both agree that it is very important to build your author platform, especially in this day and age. And if we were having this conversation 20 years ago, we would not be having this conversation. No. So a great example of that is Alicia Cook. And Alicia Cook, who lives in New Jersey, and uh, this is an article that is in the Huffington Post and it's titled, Writer Discovered on Social Media, Signs with Powerhouse Literary Agency. So she has been writing stories, you know, since she was little and is now being represented by a reputable literary agent, uh, Waxman Leval Literary Agency located in New York City. So she used social media to basically just post her daily writing, you know, and interacting with people. She has an Instagram account, which is at the Alicia Cook, uh, which um, now has like 14,000 Instagram followers who check her page just to see what she's writing about. And she wrote some poetry, a book of poetry, which she self-published um, just in January 2016, so only six, seven minutes months ago. ago. <laughs> yeah, minutes ago. <laughs> and it's called Stuff I've Been Feeling Lately. <laughs> she announced its release on her social media pages and readers immediately began purchasing the book. And it was like by the end of the first day, the book was in the number one spot on Amazon in hot new releases of poetry by women. So there was no formal marketing, just word of mouth and social media. And um, it remains as one of the top 10 bestsellers on Amazon under women authors. So as a result of that, one, an agent from that literary agency um, took note and basically has now signed her, which goes to show that um, – you know, social media is can play a really integral part in building your author platform. Yes, that's really interesting. I'm just having a look, and you know, she she has it's an interesting thing because she she's created a little niche for herself. You know, mm. she she's become popular and heavily read 
in the areas of mental illness and addiction. She lost her cousin to a heroin overdose a decade ago. She writes primarily on those sorts of areas when she writes features and those sorts of things. She's created a little kind of space for herself in that area. Mm. Um, She donated all the funds from stuff I've been feeling lately to the Willow Tree Centre, which is a rehab centre for those suffering from addiction as well as people who are, you know, supporting them or or left behind or those sorts of things. Um, So she's kind of gone down that road and then she's got the poetry as well. Um, It's an interesting, she's she's created quite a mix and, and I think that that's something that, because uh, people often say to me, oh, I don't know what to write about. I don't know what to do. And, I, you know, you write about the stuff that matters to you. Mm. Like when you're, when you're putting together your, your social media, you know, spaces, you be yourself and you write about yes. the stuff that interests you. You share the stuff that interests you. You, you do those sorts of things. And that, that's, that's where you find your readership. Because the people who are interested in the kinds of things that you're writing about become your readers. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's my number one piece of advice for people mm. who are, because it, there's a lot of people that say, I, I don't, I can't start my platform until I've written my book because, you know, I've got nothing to write about. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, no, because you want people to get to know you and the kinds of things you're interested in and the sorts of areas that you, that you kind of work across. And, and then, then you go from there. And you've got a readership waiting for you. That's an interesting way to Absolutely. go about it. Absolutely. Mm. And I think also people kind of tend to filter themselves and they're a bit scared to put stuff out there or they're writing out there on social media. And something like poetry actually really lends itself to social media because it's much shorter mm. than something long. But it doesn't matter whether you're a poet, into poetry or whether you're into other kinds of writing. Um, I think that one of the things is she's relatively young. I'm not sure what her actual age is, but she's mm. relatively young. Um, and And when you are young and you start using social media, you don't have a filter. You don't think, oh, are people going to think I'm an idiot Mm. for putting out this poem? Yeah. Or are people going to think that's the wrong turn of phrase or whatever? It's just stuff that she's been thinking lately. Mm. So if something, you know, if you're thinking of what do I put on social media, put stuff that you've been thinking lately because then it's going to resonate with the people who you appeal to. Yeah. And it's worthwhile. So this and other useful, very useful platform building tips uh, can be found in Alison's wonderful course, How to Build Your Author Platform. And you can find out more at writerscenter.com.au slash platform. So now this we've kind of reached almost the end of this week's episode, Al. What, um, what's happening with you this week? Well, I'm editing. Uh, so I'm working on the fourth book in the Mapmaker Chronicles and I'm, you know, zhuzhing that up and making it as wonderful as I possibly can. Um, I am also, however, uh, fixing because, I, you know, here's something, I can't just do one thing all the time because that would just drive me mad yes. and all I end up doing is procrastinating. So um, I'm also uh, doing some further tweaks for the Make Time to Write course that is coming out a little bit later in in the year through the Australian Writers' Centre, yes. um, which is nearly done. I'm nearly done and then it's all over to you, Valerie, to do all the all yeah. the zhuzhi stuff. It's very um, exciting. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash time. Absolutely. And then I've also got a school visit this week, so that's oh. a bit fun. I take a little bit of time out to go and uh, talk about you know, where ideas come from and what do you need to happen? What does a story need to be a story and all those sorts of things what with a group grade? of grade five and six. Oh, yeah, looking five. forward to it. That should be fun. Mm. Mm. And you? 
Um, well, after being away for a week and it felt longer than a week, I really just need to, you know, go, go through my exploding inbox and all of that kind of stuff. I've actually moved, you know, as regular listeners will know, some time ago, actually a year and one week <laughs> or a year and five days ago. But I'm, who's counting? Yeah. I mm. moved house and today... Finally, today, I've hung up the pictures. Oh, you have? Yeah. We talked about this a few weeks ago that it was on the cards. On the cards. So it's done. How do they look? Yeah, good. Well, not all of them are hung up, but phase one are hung up, which is fantastic because that's better than none being hung up. True. Yes. And have you grouped them all in a gallery wall? Is it, you know, have you gone gone a little bit house and garden on us or what have you done? It's not that fancy. (laughs) Okay. It's, it's not that exciting. But okay. um, I'm very, very happy that they're finally up. And I've, there's all those little things that you go, oh, my God, I've been here a year. I've really got to do X. And mm. that is uh, – I, I, now that it is a year, I'm, a, I'm like shaming myself into <laughs> into doing are, it. Are you not even rewarding yourself with banoffee pie for getting the frames up? You're actually just shaming yourself into it, are you? No. In fact, the banoffee pie, um, you might be interested to know, is dependent on you. Oh. Yeah, because once the make time to write course (laughs) is up. Oh, no. I, you know, and that involves not just you, it's me as well because I have to, you know, go Mm -hmm. through it. Um, Then I get banoffee pie. Are you kidding? I am responsible. I'm holding your banoffee pie in the palm of my hand. Uh Uh-huh. Mm, I know, right? <laughs> I, feel, I feel I have a little power coming on. <laughs> it's going to my head. Oh, but we will let you know, listeners, when I finally get banoffee pie. But really, I'm going to tweet about it in Facebook and Instagram, and so you'll probably know well beforehand. <laughs> All right. Well, um, thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you for helping us get into the 30 most outstanding podcasts on writing in the world. We so appreciate it. And we look forward to chatting to you again. Oh, I forgot. What? Where do we find you on online, Al? Oh, gosh, how could we forget that? Our, the, we didn't do very well with our author platform stuff there, did we? Um, my, you'll find me at alisontate.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at altait, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Instagram and Facebook at alisontatewriter. And it- you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Instagram and Twitter. Just search for Valerie Koo on Facebook and you will find me as uh, the Valerie Koo on Snapchat. So we look forward to connecting to you online and thank you so much for listening. We'll chat to you again next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.